Hey everyone, welcome back to the Eking Out Loud podcast. Today, we're reaching the long-awaited conclusion of the Books of Babel, with the final chapters of the Fall of Babel. I'm your host, Drew McCaffrey, and back at it with me is Lauren McCaffrey. Cheers. Oh, oh we need a better... <laughs> a better cheers. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Before we head into the episode itself, just a quick reminder that we're on Patreon. Support for the show there helps keep the lights on and gives you access to all kinds of fun bonus content, such as exclusive episodes, original fiction, and more. But now, we head into the final stretch of the Fall of Babel as our heroes fight off Marat's Wakeman in the cistern. The Hod King withdraws and heads up the tower, aiming to break into the Sphinx's lair from below. Sunlin makes a plan with Taru and Finn Gall to sabotage it in a crucial moment. The crew of the State of Art track Marat and the Hod King to Sicilia, the ringdom just below the Sphinx's lair where they find it in chaos. The people are fleeing after the Queen destroyed the plumbing, and Edith, Iron, Voletta, and the Rettlemen head in to cut off Mara. All the while, Voletta is having visions of the Bricklayer, who gives her instructions on how to manage the true purpose of the tower. While they're busy, however, Duke Pell boards the State of Art in pursuit of Maria. He shoots Byron with a crossbow before chasing Maria through the airship. With the help of Anne, Maria holds him off, and Byron, only injured after all, arrives in time to kill the Duke. The Hod King arrives in Sicilia and begins wreaking havoc, but Senlin's sabotage cripples the war machine. Marat executes most of the crew after they see him able to walk, and takes Senlin prisoner before using a mini Hod King escape pod thing to escape up into the Sphinx's domain. While they're infiltrating that ringdom, the State of Art heads up to Nebos, hoping to come in from the attic. They find Adam and Runa about to be executed for bringing the Hod children into Nebos, and save them. From there, they head down to save Senlin in turn, and stop Luke Marat while Adam and Runa get to work replacing the capstone on the pyramid. As Marat unlocks the zoetrope to disappointingly little effect, as far as he can tell, Voletta rescues Senlin. Marat and the Wakemen chase after, and what ensues is a chaotic battle among Senlin's friends, the Wakemen, and the Sphinx's reawakened creations. Edith and Luke Marat eventually fight their way up into the Lightning Sea, where the Rettleman tackles Marat, and they both die. The survivors return to Nebos as the tower shakes and rumbles. They end up splitting apart, with Edith going back to the State of Art, along with Iron, Anne, and Byron, while Senlin, Maria, Adam, and Voletta remain in Nebos. Nebos itself breaks away, revealed to be a gigantic spaceship. Adam and Voletta find the bridge, where the Bricklayer's message explains that they're heading to a new world where other Towers of Babel have also launched ships. The Rettleman, somehow alive through the Sphinx's medium, helps guide Voletta. And at last, Thomas Senlin reunites with his long-lost wife at the top of the tower, just as they promised. Maria, after adopting two Hod children, is not quite ready to take him back, but the door is left open, and Senlin once again takes up his mantle as a schoolteacher. So, Lauren... Oh, man. Four books. The Books of Babel. Uh, let's talk series overall impressions now that we've finished it. I feel like Josiah Bancroft's writing, uh, not that it started out poor, it didn't, but it's only improved. Mm. And I love the way he dives into people's heads 
and makes me feel what they're feeling and understand who they are and what their perspective is. Mm. I really enjoy, especially in this book, a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe the strongest prevailing opinion I have on the series and and it's important, I think we should point out, uh, we're recording this episode nearly a year after we started the first book. We're recording this early November 2023. We started reading, what, January 2023? I don't know. <laughs> Might have been, Might have been December, late December. But... Uh, we had, we, you know, a huge gap Yeah. in that time. Um, Inking Out Loud was off the air. We put things on hold and then we came back and we read through and we finished the fall of Babel and one thing after another life got in the way in a lot of different manners. And it's been maybe a month and a half since we both finished reading this book. Yeah. And I think both of us have had to like sit down and refresh and review. <laughs> I definitely know. have. And, uh, and so despite all of that in this kind of unorthodox process reading through the series, one thing has stuck with me and that is the emotional landscape that Bancroft created. Explain. I, I forget about little details and scenes and action sequences and things like that pretty regularly. I, I've gone through the series where I'm, you know, we'll be talking through an episode and I'm like, oh yeah, that's a thing that happened. But the, the biggest impact and, and I think is going to be the longest term impression I have from the series is the powerful sense of yearning and melancholy throughout it. He did a great job of landing it in this where there's a lot of bittersweetness to the end of it. I really feel that. And not just with Senlin and Maria, but with Edith as well. Uh, you know, Redelman, we went through the whole series, not trusting this guy. And we get to the end and you're like, he's a good guy. He, he really did turn out to be a different person after the Sphinx resurrected him. And he was earnestly, honestly helping them. Yes. And he's continuing to do that. And, and there's a tinge of bittersweetness to it because he died. Yeah. And yeah, he's sort of still around, but he died. And even in death, he's helping. And then you get so much more insight into both Adam and Voletta in this book. And Voletta especially, she's not herself anymore. She's dramatically, permanently altered because of the Sphinx's medium. And even though she does get to find her adventure and reconnect with her brother and, and work toward a healthy life it comes with a hefty cost and Edith as well. You know, it, she's forced into a position that she may not be altogether happy with. 
as the next Sphinx. But at the same time, it's thematically appropriate. It's clear that her whole character arc has been building to this point, and yet it doesn't feel necessarily happy. I think the happiest is is a, a Iron and Anne. Yeah. Their ending. Yeah. Um, well, Adam, Adam. Yeah, but even even then, I think there there's such a. A, a high level of damage in the background for both Adam and Valletta. Adam's maybe the one character other than Senlin and Maria that I would be most interested in reading more about. I think he still has a ways to go. Oh, I have multiple characters that I would, I would want to read the rest of. Yeah. But, but all, all of these tie into an emotional landing that Bancroft nailed. I loved reading the final pages of this book. I loved closing it and just sitting there and letting it settle into me and, and feel that kind of. (sighs) I spent a lot of time thinking about how I felt about it. I wasn't, I didn't just, finish it and go, ah, no, I, it was, it was like, what, uh, how do I, it, it's a lot to process. How do I feel about each character's ending? How do I feel about the way the series has ended? Yeah. I'm yeah. not settled. Yeah. I, I, I didn't want to give the impression that like that sigh I gave was like, okay, it's done. Move on. Okay. It, it was more just a, a sense of, of melancholy almost. Uh, the best series are ones that stick with you. And it left me with this kind of hollow inside me. And that's why I say the prevailing impression of the series for me is the emotional impact that I still think about. Yeah, it's not necessarily the trauma of the parlor or like any of the other ringdoms, Nebos being super entitled and whatever. And it's no. not the like, oh, the action scenes were so cool. No. Or you know, it, it was, he did a very, very good job of bringing these characters to life and creating emotionally impacting arcs for each of them. I, I do feel stronger about some than others. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'm disappointed in some. Hmm. I'm not saying it doesn't fit the story because I think it does. It's just, you know, we all want happy endings for the characters that we care about, right? Sure. And I didn't get that for everybody. And I think we'll talk about this more when we get into actual character. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. But in terms of series wide impressions, do you feel like he did a good job of carrying each character's story through four books? For the most part, yes. Yeah. Um, I think he definitely changed the direction he was going with people. Partway through, and that's okay. 
do you mean this in a, you think he changed his mind midway through writing the series? Or is it, you were just not anticipating the direction he took some of them? No, I think he changed his mind. And I think maybe there was some editorial direction that he got. I'm not saying Hmm. either of those is a bad thing. I don't think he changed his mind. No? No, I, I think he had a pretty clear vision for Senlin and Maria, I, I'm sure you're right. But for other mm. characters, I don't think so. Who? Um, no, let's talk about this now. Who do you think he he changed on the fly? I don't think Valida and Adam were supposed to end up the way they did. Um, I think... <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I would love to say that I think they weren't supposed to end up there. Um, This is still like maybe my biggest criticism of the series is that there was no thematic uh, through line. Yeah. Regarding. I know you wanted it. And the name Adam. You wanted it. And the biblical allusions, allusions, not illusions. Um, Good clarification. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I guess technically they were illusions because they had me looking the wrong way the whole time. Well, I um, told or you. Maybe not necessarily I was looking the wrong way, but I wanted to look the wrong way. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I, I think he was planning that the whole time. I think it was a deliberate choice from the get go to use names that would make people think one thing and then subvert those expectations. I think you want that. No, I don't want that. I want the opposite. I want him to have set out. I know, I know, I know. I think you just, you wanted it all. You wanted the names plus the the underlying. No, well, what do you mean? You wanted the names and the illusions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think he ever intended for those to be there. Maybe not. Like, I I think he did set out from the get-go, writing the first book, knowing I'm going to choose to name these people and these places, these things, and it will put people down the wrong path. I don't think he changed his mind. Sure, wrong path. I think the way the where they ended up changed. Like on a spaceship going to another planet? No, the like who and the hmm how. Uh, the... Hmm. I don't think so because there's such a, a strong thematic like full circle. Folita? Yeah, mm. I oh, I do think so. I do think so. I think he nailed what he was aiming out for. I I I think in terms of editorial, mm, like the hand of the editor on the story, I think there is something to be said for a change mid series. But it wasn't necessarily about characters. It was more about story structure and pacing 
there's a which is a good a, thing in general. Mm. Okay, say say your say your piece. Okay, well, I'll I'll talk specifically about the fourth book here. Um, I brought this up in the first episode on Fall of Babel. The decision to leave Adam entirely out of the third book. Eh. I don't like. That's probably my biggest criticism of this final volume. Sure. The pacing felt very weird. Nearly a third of the book is taken up with Adam in part one. Might have even been more than a third. I'd I'd have to go back and look. But catching him up in timeline. But it doesn't feel like we actually catch him up in timeline. Okay. And so when the state of art arrives in Nebos and and they find Adam and Runa in the nooses, it was this sense of like, oh, of course that's what happened. But also that wasn't satisfying. It was telegraphed. And and it it just felt too easy. It it really felt to me like Adam needed to do and struggle through more because everybody else had to. I see no reason why we couldn't have the beginning parts of Adam's storyline in this book in the last book. Yeah. Yeah. Um But I don't even know if that's necessarily it. Okay. This is hard to describe. It's more like I I think Adam needed to do more. And if we still had his plot line, the things that happen in this book happen in this book other than his arrival at Nebos. Okay. Great. But I would have liked him to arrive at Nebos at the end of the previous book and lay the groundwork. You mean for like what's going to happen? He's a celebrity, blah blah blah. He's yeah. like, what in the yeah is going on? And I think if that had happened in the like the middle third of sure, maybe even just an interlude or two in the yeah. second book, and set up a conflict and then solve that conflict at the end of the book. And leave us hanging and say, okay, Adam's here. This is his struggle. We've overcome a speed bump, but there's a bigger hill to climb. And then we're going to go there. I remember uh, after finishing the first half of uh, The Hod King, predicting we would see Adam in the final scene of the book. Mm. And then that didn't happen. I do think he ended the book very well that that final scene with Senlin meeting Luke Marad and seeing the Hod King. But I don't know. The pace just felt off. And I think it was partially an artifact of the new structure the third and fourth books took. And that felt like a, an editorial decision rather than a Bancroft decision because the first two books when he was, more writing on his own, uh, we're doing something very different. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree with you on this. I I could see that being helpful. So, so yeah, and, and the other result of it is that 
things with the state of art and the Hod King in the Fall of Babel felt very rushed to me. Yeah. Uh, it, it was it was just like boom, 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 boom. No time to breathe. I think uh, the the bit that suffered the most from it was the Duke coming out to the state of art. It felt very out of nowhere and yes. and just sort of like that scene takes place on its own little island over here. And then we're not going to talk then it's about done it either. And, and okay, we're moving on. Yeah, and we never really had time to. The, the characters they never had time to... Well, they to, didn't want to either. They wanted to, like... Yeah, well, they didn't... Yeah, exactly. Pretend it didn't happen. Because the, they had to go. They're, the rest well, of them are off, you know, battling Mario, the Hod King. Mario's embarrassed, too. And... and Anne's embarrassed. And there's no fallout Byron's it. embarrassed. It's just, it, it just feels like, oh, this is a, a hanging plot thread. I need to wrap this up real quick over here. Okay, that's done. All right, now back to the main story. No, and so you're right. we didn't get the right. the time and space, the physical or emotional space for that scene to carry the weight it deserved, especially for Byron. I, I mean, obviously Maria, that's an important thing for her, but also for Byron, that was yeah. his climax as a character. Yeah, and and it felt like an afterthought, and I think that's kind of sad. I mean, we have so. some reflections from him later. And it's traumatic for him. But the, you're right. They didn't have their yeah. moment. Yeah. I would have liked a little more space for, for that sequence to breathe. Um, and and then we get the situation where we have the two battles against the Hod King in the cistern and then in Sicilia. And they're both kind of forgettable. The cistern less so. I will say there there's one really good moment in the cistern and that was at the very end of... Uh, where we stopped halfway through where, you know, Delith and Iron are fighting and Iron's blood is on the bubble. And she licks and it. And she licks the inside of it under where the blood is. Like, that's such a wonderfully creepy moment. It's creepy. Uh, but the the battle in Sicilia, like, this is where the Hod King is defeated. And it feels kind of forgettable to me. And I think it's partially because so much is going on so fast in such a small space. The most uh, impressionable moments from that sequence for me are Valletta's visions with the bricklayer. Oh, yeah. Those are big to me. Yeah. Like when I was doing a little skim reread of this, I totally forgot going into that, that the Rettleman had like run out and tried to act like he was planting explosives on the Hod King. And really it was Senlin's sabotage that destroyed it. I forgot about the Rettleman being even part of that. The? I keep saying the Rettleman. I know they call him Rettleman. Just that. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I there were yeah, a few, I did forget. There were a few moments, a few sequences in this where I really think having Adam's plot line distributed more would have helped the pacing of this book. Yeah. I'm not going to disagree with that. So, um, but I, I think that's all really, I have to say about writing style. Should we get into characters overall here? Okay. Okay. Where do you want to start? So you said that the, 
overall arcs and, and endings in specific for some characters had a bigger impact on you than others. Who's at the top of your list? I'm still really upset about Maria and Senlin. Yeah, okay. I thought that's what you were going to say. I agree. Um, I wouldn't say I'm upset. I'm mad at them. <laughs> I'm not necessarily mad about their conclusion. I'm mad at them. I I said that they're the two other than Adam. Well, they're the only two more than Adam that I would like to read more about. And it's because they have a very compelling relationship and I am so invested in that relationship, that marriage working. I'm pretty invested. I'm I, pretty mad. I will say. Um, Folita, I would read more. For sure, sure. Actually, multiple characters, but yeah. I think Bancroft did a good job of, you know, like I said in the uh, the summary, he left the door open for their relationship to work. I had been talking throughout all of these episodes that I was very afraid he was going to go the route of, oh, they've changed too much. They're never going to work. I'd be, They're going to really go bad. their own ways. Um, what he did... What he did is better than that. Mm-hmm. It does feel a little bit fan service but not in the traditional sense of like when we talk about fan service. It more in the sense of he wants to appease as much of his audience as possible, knowing that there are going to be a wide section of readers who want Semlin and Maria to go their own ways. And so he mm-hmm. leaves the possibility that, okay, they've, they, maybe they have changed too much and they're going to find their own paths. But he also sets it up where, it is very clearly possible that, you know, now they have nothing but time on a spaceship in confined quarters. Olivet is the bridge between them and they can get to know each other again properly and rekindle their marriage. And that is what I choose to believe is, is happening. Um, of course, if he did ever write more about them, it would be frustrating as hell because you need conflict. And if he eventually got them back together happily, it would involve a lot of really annoying <laughs> interpersonal relationship drama. But <laughs> but I have to say that I love bittersweet endings, and this was a bittersweet ending. I know you do. I don't. <laughs> I'm going to hand you a book that made me want to throw it against the wall with the ending. Oh, boy. We'll see how you do. Okay. Okay. You probably would like I it. mean, I'm, I'm just saying we have um, coming up soon on the Inking Out Loud podcast, our next proper series is a Lauren McCaffrey recommendation. Yeah. I don't hate the ending, all right? <laughs> We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit, but uh, later on at the end of the episode, we'll announce that. But, but yeah, uh, I, I liked it. I liked the ending. I think 
there are ways he could have ended things with Marianne Sandlin that I would have liked even more. Yes. Um, not necessarily the same way you're thinking. Um, like, there's a way to make things both more bitter and more sweet. Ugh. Okay. Do you do you want me to read what I what I highlighted with their the end of their relationship? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Senlin, they're both on the spaceship. Yep. And Senlin keeps visiting Maria as he's allowed to. Yes. Um, and she keeps opening the door and bringing um, their daughter and allowing him to spend time. And there's a night where he goes there and she says, I don't know if I'm ready to talk, but I'm willing to listen a little. And he says, all right, wonderful. Thank you. And though he'd spent the days preparing, he felt a little flummoxed. He took a deep breath to settle himself and said, I worry that I ensnared you in a marriage that was a great luxury to me and a poor bargain for you. I took the tower. It took the tower to make me see what a small man I was. And every day that my estimation of myself shrank, my esteem for you grew. I burden you with my mediocrity. You are capable of, you deserve much more than me or what I could give you. Your success in Pelphia proves as much. I know that stage was built on another man's lies, his avarice and lust. But the genius, the talent, was yours, not his. The applause was not misplaced. I could scald my hands, clapping them together every hour of every day for the rest of my life, and it wouldn't be sufficient to demonstrate how much I admire you, your strength, your gifts, your... She frowned with such concerted force, his words stumbled to a stop, and he nearly faltered from the stoop. Do you really think me so shallow? Do you think I wanted applause from you? Wished to marry my audience? Tom, I wanted to share a life with you. To grow together like two vines. To tangle and thicken and bear fruit. Even now, after everything, I can't believe you continue to doubt my affection. And he says... I only doubt that I merited it. And she says, I wish you had as much respect for my judgment as you have for your own. Mm -hmm. And that like, oh, as, as he was saying all of that, I was like, you have made her, you have taken her from a person and made her into a caricature and like an effigy of who she is. Yeah. And you don't, you have taken her out of this. And so I think that scene is important in two ways. And it's why there's potential for him to write another story with them, a continuation with them. It's not just that, as time and, and geographic distance have, have turned her into a statue upon a pedestal to him. Yes. But 
you read through that talking, you know, him talking about both himself and herself. And he thinks about how the tower has shown me what a small man I am. Bullshit. The tower has turned Thomas Senlin into a far bigger man than he ever was. He was a nobody school teacher on a tiny coastal town, and he became a larger-than-life hero, a pirate, a revolutionary, a, a full-on hero shaped by the tower. But here he is belittling... He's belittling himself and... And her judgment. Uh, and worshipping her. And her judgment. He's belittling her judgment and in his own judgment, showing that his judgment is bad. Yes. So this conversation is doing two things at the same time, showing they really can't be together right at this moment. You know what it reminded me of, though, Drew, is um, in the X-Wing books. Kelantiria. Thank you. Yeah. Where she's like, you are in love with the idea of me. Yeah. You're in you love with Ateria who doesn't me. exist. Yes. And I've experienced that. Like, thank you, guy at the bar, from for being nice. But you don't know me. And the funny thing is, and, and really it shows the character development in, in, in not necessarily a positive way, but in a progressive way this was not at all his attitude regarding maria at the beginning no no they had a a not not a healthy marriage they but it was they didn't just, communicate it was just beginning yeah they didn't communicate well but it was a human relationship what we have at the end of this is a like superhuman relationship or or a uh, an extra human relationship. He's forgotten so much of who she is and disrespected her yep. so much that he's in love with the idea of her yeah. and she knows it. Correct. He, he has turned her in his mind into something beyond humanity, into something beyond his wife. She is a symbol, a goal for him to attain. Yes. And at the same time, he has denigrated himself into something subhuman despite the growth that he has undergone in other ways. So it's it's a an impressively layered bit of character development from Bancroft. And this is why the emotional impact at the end is so strong for me. Do you do you remember what she says after this? Uh after after he Yes. Well she basically says like you know, we're not going to, like, I'm not ready to do this thing, but I will allow you to continue seeing me, speaking with we. Let's learn each other again. She Let's says, start over and... So he says, can you ever forgive me? And she says, oh, I, don't, specific. Okay. I don't know. Forgiveness is a feeling, yeah. just like love is a feeling. I don't know if I have any control over my feelings. <laughs> um, you know where I'm going with this, Drew. Come on. I do. Um, and I had actually highlighted this. Did you? I did. Um, <laughs> we're going to get real, uh, 
real relationship advice on, on everybody right now. Um, one of the kind of foundational aspects of our marriage, our relationship is that love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. And I would say so is forgiveness. So is forgiveness. Yeah. You, you wake up every day and you choose to love your wife. You choose to love your husband. If it's a feeling, then it's going to be fleeting. Yeah. And, and like, that's why the idea of, you know, a a honeymoon phase is like, that's when the, the hormones are high. The, the emotions are running hot and then you get used to it. And that goes away because no human body can maintain that for forever. But if you're going to have a successful relationship, you have to understand that like, Hey, sometimes days are going to be worse. Sometimes you're going to grow apart and you're going to have to learn how to grow back together. And during that process, you got to choose to love your partner, love your spouse, love your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, and say, Hey, this is worth working toward. This is worth communicating over. This is worth rebuilding or bridging or whatever your situation is. And I appreciate that at the end, even though they're going about this, not necessarily in the same way I would or with the same philosophy I would, but they do choose. Let's communicate. Let's work on this. And let's see if we can rebuild it. I hope they're actually going to be as optimistic as you sound. (laughs) (laughs) But, but also, yeah, like if, if I were to think that every day that I wake up, I'm going to have the same fuzzy feeling. That's obviously unrealistic. Yeah. The butterflies in your stomach go away real fast. And it's, and it's not even that it's just like, has every day of your life been the same? No. Well, okay. Then let's deal with reality, not dream world. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I was, okay. So I was (laughs) thrilled with him being a teacher again. I was so happy for him. That was good. That was a good full circle moment. You know, it was thematically appropriate. And the way that he goes, like his teaching philosophy, the way that he goes about it is so refreshing. Yeah. And happy. Yeah. I was really proud of him. There is a real, like, probably the sweetest part of the bittersweet ending is the sense of promise that Nebos is overrun with children. Yeah. At the end of the book. That there is a, a a bloom about to happen in this society. And he's playing a role and he is somebody who should be gardener. in that role. And uh, okay, so there's one point where he's talking about his new class <laughs> and like how he's going to direct them, not um, put them down or like criticize them but help them value the education that he's giving them and yeah i was i really liked it and he certainly changes his teaching philosophy 
I don't know if it's that different. I think he was a good teacher at the beginning too. I'm sure he was, uh, but the impression I got is that he's a lot more flexible as a teacher now. Okay. Um, he's willing to work with the children in their own ways rather than rigidly shape them in his way. Okay. Yeah. So, so one of the ones, <laughs> there's a scene like right before he goes to Maria where uh, he's got a kid questioning him like, why should I want to learn this? This is dumb. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> Say whatever you want. <laughs> you know, and he's 13, so he knows it all. Right. Of course. And Senlin redirects him. Yeah. And it's like, no, that's a good question. And you should ask questions. And I'm not going to tell you not to. But I don't want you to conflate want with need. To believe that the resources required of are either infinite or to think that our understanding of these marvels is innate. It would be a terrible error to believe that the fragile things our ancestors built and gave to us are inexhaustible and eternal. And he goes into this whole allegory. Did you did you know this one before? I did not. The uh, humble merchant. Modest merchant, sorry. Modest I did merchant. Not. I liked it a lot. <laughs> I felt like it added depth to the story. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Where he's he's talking about how like there are consequences to your actions and there are consequences to your choices. And we need to be realistic about the trade-offs of everything we do and everything we want. And I really, I mean, I really related to what he was talking about. Yeah. Especially when he was talking about like this kid, Milo, who's pushing back on him. He's like, why should I care? I have a robot in the kitchen who brings me pudding. Yeah. Why do I need to know anything? My needs are taken care of. And Senlin pushes back and he's like, where does the pudding come from? What is the recipe? What happens when the robot breaks? What are you going to do? How does the robot work? Have you asked any of these questions? Yeah. Because I think you should. Because to pretend that everything's going to stay the same forever is unrealistic. Yep. I don't know. I thought it was fun. And I, I no, it, it's good. And I think that shows his change in teaching that he is more flexible as a thinker now because of the situations he's been put in and because of the different sorts of leadership positions he's had to hold. And now he's applying those lessons learned to his own lessons. And I thought it added depth to the story of the tower. Oh, yeah. You know, where we're talking about um, people so taking many things ringdoms. from others. Yeah, so many ringdoms just take their current situation for granted and assume 
this is how it, it is, how it's always been and how it always will be. And they look down on the Hods and they're like, oh, they're just. And you know. or they thought that they had a duty that they don't have, like taking eyes from people in the parlor. Oh, sure. Yeah. That they thought they were supposed to take eyes every single day and have been doing this for how many years mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and sending them like straight up to Nebos. Yeah. And the disgusting. Oh, yeah. Seeing the the imports to Nevos Ugh. really shows how, you know, the, the bureaucracy of the tower muddled purpose. Yeah. So, okay. We should move on. Okay. Character-wise, because we're 45 minutes in. Well. Um... Edith. I'm sad for Edith. You're sad for Edith? Yeah. Okay. She wants companionship. And she doesn't have it. That's fair. The Sphinx role is a very lonely It is. Oh, it very much is. And I don't want that for her because... I think she wants more. There, there are people who are fine with it, but I don't think she's one of them. So I have to admit, I never really connected with Edith enough to feel bad for her with this. I did. She, and, and partially this was reactionary because she was set up as a Maria alternative for Semlin. And Ugh. I did not want that to happen. Okay, so. And so for me, I was like, no, please have her be the Sphinx. Have her do her own thing over there. So Senlin and Maria can figure their shit out. And we don't play the love triangle crap. Correct. Yeah. No, Edith Edith was already in a loveless marriage in a bad situation when she's forced into. And she worked hard. She worked through her given role and and out of it. Mm-hmm. And she wanted those simpler things. And she doesn't get to have no. any of the things yeah. that she, she wants. She takes a yoke upon her shoulders. She does. Yeah. And without without a partner's support. Without a partner's support. Yeah. Exactly. But you know that Iron and Anne and Byron are going to be there for her. That's not the same. It's not the same, but it's she's not going to be living the same solitary life the last Sphinx did. So sad. Um, Iron and Anne, I don't have much to say. Uh, I'm surprised Iron. I'm surprised neither Iron nor Voletta died. (laughs) I'm surprised the whole crew lived. Riddleman, all right? He doesn't really count. Fine. (laughs) Um, but Voletta and Iron especially, I mean, I've been thoroughly on record about both of them at this point. That I thought at first Iron was going to die saving Valletta, and then the 
death flags started dropping around Iron and raising around Valletta and, <laughs> and neither of them died. I'm like, okay, fair enough. I mean, say what you will about the series. Josiah Bancroft subverted my expectations. I really relate to Valida. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> and also I, I love how we get to see the Sphinx's medium through her eyes. Yeah. And, and she gives us the backstory. That's pretty darn cool. Yep. First of all, she's a thrill junkie and now she's all powerful. And then she <laughs> adds, she adds an element that she didn't have before, which is thoughtfulness. Right. And she needed that. She did. Well, she and Adam needed that. Okay. Um, let's see. I don't, I don't really have much more to say. Byron? Character-wise. I mean, Byron's Byron. I love Byron. He's, he, yeah, I, I've, he's great. He has good, but sweet I haven't character really, moments. He does. But that's been him the whole time. Hmm. You know? That's just Byron. Byron's great. He's our stag butler. He's more than that. Drew. (laughs) No. I want to talk about something less character focused and more story focused. Okay. I want to get your opinion on the plot ending of the story. Okay. How do you feel about the tower being or the top of the tower being a literal spaceship that launches people to some central location. And there have been towers planted on multiple planets and they're like seeding humanity throughout the stars or something like. I've been wrestling with my feelings over this since I finished the book and I, I don't think I like it. I still don't like it. Okay. Um, it feels anticlimactic. Really? Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it feels like we almost had a climax and then it was just kidding. Huh. We're going to somewhere else. Wow. Who knows? I did not feel like that was anticlimactic. I was disappointed. I had a feeling that we might be going to the stars. Oh, yeah, yeah, But I, I am sad. Hmm. I know uh, from talking to other people who finished this series that this is a controversial plot development. That a lot of people didn't like that. I did. I, um, I felt actually pretty similar to the end of this as I did uh, with the end of Ender's game with Ender and Valentine heading off on the generation ship out into the stars. Spoilers for Ender's game. If you haven't read a classic sci-fi book from 40 years ago, um, it, it felt very similar. No. Mm-mm. Yeah. Okay. Explain why it felt similar. Because it was it was a bittersweet situation where 
our main male character, Ender or Senlin, has been working to reunite with the person most important to him throughout the book and reunites, but not in the way they wanted. They have to abandon Earth, abandon the life they had built, and go off into the stars for the future of humanity. No, I don't feel that way. Huh. Yeah. Nope. That was that was a hundred percent my impression of the end of this this series. I feel like Ender has to go off because he's been destroyed. Oh, I'm not saying Ender himself is the same character as Thomas Senlin. I'm not talking about the character level thing. I'm talking about the plot, the end I, of it. I feel like he had no choice. I don't think Senlin had a choice. Senlin's not the same man. Senlin, Senlin couldn't ever return to the to his previous life. I think he could. No, no. He can't be a pirate captain. Not and that a life. hod hero. And no. Oh, okay. KK. He can't do all these things and change in the way he did and then go back to his quiet little seaside town. Did he not just do that? He's teaching kids again. But he's not back in his quiet little seaside town. And he's not teaching the same way. He's not teaching the same children. He's not living the same life. It is dramatically different. Mm. I think he could do it. I think Mario could do it. No. Um, Obviously, they're not in the right place. Right now. But my my point, though, is, again, not focusing on characters, focusing on plot. Okay. The idea of leaving the world behind to go further humanity. They didn't even the know they were doing that. That that doesn't matter. Yes, it does. Do you have a choice? Do you not have a choice? I'm not talking about the characters. Okay. I didn't like it because I felt like the bricklayer manipulated to his own ends. And sure. I don't feel like the tower is settled at all. No, the tower is not settled at all. It is very frustrating. That's Edith's job now. That like we can't <laughs> settle the tower. Yeah. We, we just <laughs> abandon everything that, the series has worked towards. Well, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I feel like the series was sort of going in the direction of the tower is an irreconcilable mess. And all that matters is that it's one pure function established by the bricklayer is fulfilled. And we got that. And he never told anybody yeah. And I feel like it was manipulating humanity. Totally. And I don't like it. Yeah. That is very fair. There have been plenty of series I've read that like a core thematic line I like I disagree with on a moral level. Yeah. And I could agree with that. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> any other like 
plot points, miscellaneous points, things to talk about before we get into favorite scenes? Uh, Luke Mara. Okay. And the Wakeman. Okay. Some of them are getting rehabilitated. Hopefully. Possibly. Maybe. Ideally. Sphinx dying, so... That's another thing that I felt like if we'd gotten better pacing, we could have... I don't know. I didn't feel any real impact from the Sphinx dying. It felt so delayed. Yeah, it was like, oh, okay. Like, we yeah, think, is she sense. dead? We cool. think she's dead. Is she dead? We think she's dead. And then it was like, oh, yeah, yep, she's, she's dead. dead. You know, instead of like, <gasps> she's dead. Right. You know, in the first instance of, why isn't it opening? Oh my gosh, what's going on? Yeah. And I wanted to feel more about um, her lost words mm-hmm. in her mm-hmm. recording mm-hmm. than I did. Yeah, there wasn't time for that to... Settle? And germinate. Yeah. 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 Like, most of my complaints about this final book revolve around the structure and pace of it. Okay. And that's another example. I wanted to grieve her. I wanted to feel all of that, actually, from Volita. I wanted to feel it. I wanted to be in Volita's head and feel all of it. Strongly. And mm-hmm. we didn't. Mm-hmm. We just moved on because we don't have time. Okay. So, four books in the series. Which one's your favorite? I want to say this one, but I think it was the last one. The Hod King? Yeah. I think the Hod King was my favorite as well. I... I loved, loved the first half of it. Senlin in Pelfia working to finally meet Maria. I loved that entire sequence. It was so strong. And then the ridiculous adventures of everybody else when they get to Pelfia on the state of state of art and yeah, I, I think I would rank this the books. Hod King, Senlin Ascends, Armor of the Sphinx, Fall of Babel. That this was my least favorite. I still liked it. I think overall, overall? it's a... Yeah, I think overall it's a very consistently strong series. But I think this, this book was my least favorite of them. Yeah, um, I don't agree with that at all. Uh, I I had, like I said, I had a lot of issues with the pacing and structure of it. So I can't see pacing issues, but the first book's your least favorite. Yeah, I don't know. The, at that point, I was invested in what the tower is and the mysteries mm-hmm. of it, but I was not invested in characters at all. At this point, I'm very invested in characters, and I'm more invested in characters than I have been maybe at any point. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so would this be your second favorite after the yeah, hockey? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I wanted Armas Sphinx to be better. I thought it was heading that way. 
It was good. It was I liked good. Arm of the Sphinx. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I think one, two, and three are all really close for me. And then this is like a clear cut below the rest of them. But I, the, the first half of Hod King puts it at the top and then Senlin being my favorite character in the series and the first book being much more Senlin focused puts it second place. I like the mystery that we start out with. Um, we lose a lot of that mystery here. Well, sure. yeah, as you should in the final book. Yeah, but I'm <laughs> like, I wasn't. I wanted to be more excited about the answers. Sure. And I yeah. wanted the bricklayer to come back. And yeah, okay, so that's that's a good miscellaneous point to talk about. I was so certain. He was coming back. That he was coming back. And he sort of did through the medium. But, like, what? Because yeah. he disappeared before the yeah the capstone fell on him. There was the flash of purple light or whatever. And, and so I know that... Uh, Bancroft is releasing, or maybe has already released, I need to look it up, um, a, a new collection of short stories about the Tower of Babel. Could be great. And I wonder if the Bricklayer is going to show up in those, but I am genuinely surprised that, like, that felt like a gun on the mantle that never got taken down. Mm. I was morally certain <laughs> that during the climax of this book in Nebos, the bricklayer would show back up. And it wouldn't just be, you know, a hologram on the bridge or a vision through the medium. So, yeah. Uh, let's talk favorite scenes, though. Ah. We're, we're over an hour. We're over an hour in. It's fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, I'll start. How about that? Okay. So my third favorite is actually, this might be a surprise to you, Adam and Voletta finding their way onto the bridge and unlocking the spacefaring capabilities of the spaceship that is Nebos. I thought there was a really fun sense of like wonder and exploration in a confined space there. It fit for both of them. It was a strong, uh, like ending arc moment for both characters. Redelman, the Redelman, just Redelman, whatever. Just say Redelman. Um, him talking to Voletta was this like chillingly creepy but also heartwarming moment the whole the whole sequence was just really good he has a lot of creepy heartwarming moments yeah and i like him yeah by the end of it i like him too and that's I so would weird read more of him like this is a guy who like lobotomizes people for fun and i like him <laughs> i would read more of him yeah okay so i i think i'm gonna decide that Third favorite is 
all of the Hods gathered on the other side of the bridge to Nebos. Oh, nice. Okay. And we have one of the older Hods speaking for them all, and he's taking care of the children. He and other, like, rejected Hods have Mm -hmm. taken on the role of caretaker. And they're all men. Yeah, that's right. And the amount of care that they have for their charges and the way that they plead their case, that was so touching. Yeah. Mm. Nice. Good choice. Uh, So my favorite. Second. Second favorite. Sorry. Yeah. Iron fighting Deleth. In the little observation bubble. Because she the licks the blood. Yeah, that is such a great <laughs> visual moment. It's so good. Uh, like, and Deleth is so creepy as a concept. This like spider mech thing with blades for legs. And and she's got this twisted sense of humor. And oh, it, the, the whole thing just is works perfectly. The setting is oppressive right like you're underwater you're you're in a a confined space with danger built into it depending on how much collateral damage happens but really what made it land was you know when she she has the blood outside of her glass bubble and she licks the inside of it it's just like oh Perfect horror movie moment right there. I can't get you to watch many horror movies. We, yeah, I, I'm i not a big horror movie fan. Um, yeah, I know. Although we did just watch. That's a thriller. Yeah, I, I don't know if it would, We you could call it a horror movie. Uh, we thought it was going to be a horror movie. I hoped. Yeah, on, uh, on Halloween we watched uh, A Haunting in Venice. Yeah. And it was a really good movie. It was not at all what we were expecting, but it was really good. Um, a lot a lot more artsy <laughs> than expected. Yes, definitely. But, but, yeah, okay, so your second favorite. Okay, uh, I was thinking about this today. Um, I think I love Byron in between the trauma um, just going to oh, his oh yeah his safe happy place in the kitchen <laughs> and being like I'm I'm doing this because I love you guys mm-hmm. and just like working away and working at connecting them yeah in several times he works at connecting yeah, he's them but great he, at being social glue yeah it's so special mm-hmm. and like the way that he views his role and values himself and it took him a while to truly value himself it did yeah but i value him (laughs) i value him that is beautiful byron's great yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay my favorite uh you're gonna hate this but (sighs) it was it was that final conversation between semlin and maria why it was just the why pure melancholy hollow left in my stomach at the end of it with just a tinge of hope. The idea of this didn't work the way we wanted it to, but it could. 
And it really helped that the final, the final lines weren't even about Senlin and Maria, but about Senlin and Olivet. That she grabs his finger with her tiny little hand and they look out into the stars. That was my favorite scene in the book. Not my favorite scene in the series, but my favorite scene in the book. I'm trying to think of a better scene that pulls everything together. Mm. And I can't think of a better scene than Senlin and his 13-year-old classroom. And as he's describing, like, wrangling them and redirecting them, because most of them have had no education up to this point, and are like, why should we care? what kind of a vowel this is. I have all my needs met for the first time in my life. Why do I need to know anything else? Hasn't Education hasn't served me up to this point. Why do you think it should serve me now? And him like showing complete patience and care and trying. And mm-hmm. meeting them on their level, coming like full circle through the series, teacher to teacher, hmm. and a better teacher now than he's ever been. Yeah. A more understanding teacher. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I want it to be like an action scene, something crazy and no, climactic, no. but. Look, some series demand that. There are some books, some authors who write a certain way and and the best parts of their books are action scenes. I think, uh, for example, David Farland. Okay. Dave Wolverton. Yeah. The Rune Lords. Um, that's one of those. But Bancroft writes fun action scenes, but that's not what his books are about. Yeah, and I liked a lot of the quiet moments in the characters' heads. And this was mm-hmm. one of those. And he used that allegory to reach them and to tie the series together. Yep. And I thought it was good writing. Yeah, definitely. So I think that at long last, after nearly a year, <laughs> took us 11 months to read four books. Um, uh, didn't uh, actually take us that long. But no. Took us that long to read and record episodes for varying reasons, but uh, the verdict is this is a good series. I'm going to reread it. I, I I don't know if it's like a, a regular reread. I don't know if it's the kind of thing that's going to grab at me every year and say like, Hey, why aren't you rereading this? Um, but it, it is for sure the kind of thing that I'm going to want to go back and read through again and look at the foreshadowing, look at the character development and, and enjoy the journey because I had so much fun with this. So I, you know, I'm grateful for all the people 
I encountered online who who yelled about the series and were like, <laughs> oh, you should totally check it out. It is funny to think, though, that most of the uh, recommendations I got on this were like, oh, if you like Gene Wolfe and the Book of the New Sun, you'll like this. I think this is nothing like Gene Wolfe or why the Book do, of the New Sun. Why do you think that recommendation was made? Um, so I know a couple of people said if you like figuring out like the puzzle of a story, you would like this. I think this is a totally different puzzle of a story than than what Wolf does. Um, but nonetheless, <laughs> I enjoyed the hell out of this. So okay, good. And speaking of things I enjoyed the hell out of, we got to do a final draft. Okay. Uh, I'm going to start. I'm drinking an IPA from Migration Brewing Company in Portland, Oregon. Uh, 4.8% alcohol by volume. It's it's an IPA. It's fine. Um, Nothing really noteworthy to write home about, but it's good. It's beer. And uh, this one goes out to Senlin and Maria. It's called Hello Again. (laughs) I don't know how, if I like the way you just said, well, it's just beer and nothing to write a home about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you need to do yours while I prepare the second one, which is going to be shared between the two of us. And Lauren doesn't know what this beer is, so I'm excited. No, I don't. So I just went down to Durango for a Master Brewers Association of the Americas meeting um, and met these guys at Ska Brewing. And they have a whole, like, fun marketing campaign. Everything's checkered. Everything ska. Yeah, it's they're very, fun. very. You know, if you um, <laughs> if you know ska as a genre, you know that like checkered stuff is. I, I don't know. Ska oh, is ska is a thing. I enjoy ska. <laughs> um, I love going to ska shows. Like Real Big Fish was one of my very first like favorite bands. And, and Ska Brewing Company definitely carries forward the vibe. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, for example, one of the beers they've been making forever is called Ruby Soho. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's that song, Ruby Soho. So this one, though, this is also an IPA. Pretty hazy. Much hazier than mine. Mine was clear. Pretty, yeah, yeah. The, and it's not just chill haze on mine. Um, but this one is called Checkered Future IPA. Yeah, and that is definitely Edith. She's Not just a, Edith. She's Every- got a checkered future ahead of her. I feel like everybody's got a checkered future. We don't know what's going on. That's true. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Well, the surprise third leg of the final draft, which Lauren doesn't even know about. Destination Unknown? Yeah. I'm sorry. It's not called Destination (laughs) Unknown, though. Uh, So this is a beer from Resident Culture Brewing Company in Charlotte, North Carolina. They're a 
I would, I would say they've become kind of like an underground trendy brewery, especially in the barrel aged game. Um, they do some good, um, like wine barrel, wild ales and bourbon barrel aged stouts and things. Not easy to do. Uh, and this is a collaboration with green cheek beer company, an Imperial stout aged in bourbon barrels for 16 months and conditioned on Umbrana wood. Also not easy to do. And then conditioned on one pound per barrel of Tongan vanilla beans. I don't actually know what Tongan. Yeah, that's not a standard vanilla bean. Usually it's like Tahitian, Madagascar. That's right. uh, Sometimes Mexican, like. Yeah, so it's it's generally like. Uganda vanilla beans are pretty common too. Yeah, it's the method. Most of the time it's the method that you cure them dry them with the way that you do it is the name that they give it oh okay like french vanilla and yeah yeah but i have no idea what ugandan tongan tongan and then i don't know what ugandan would be either yeah um yeah so i'm really curious to try this i kind of think we should cheers here and taste it before i say the name <laughs> Good legs on this one. That is definitely Ambarana. So Ambarana wood, uh, Brazilian. Brazilian. And this wood has a characteristic flavor it imparts that most people describe as cinnamon toast crunch. Yes. Um, and and that's definitely true. I. I find, generally speaking, that there's like another layer of flavor that Ambarana gives to beers that's like a little funky and weird to me, and I don't like it as much. But this, I don't get that in. This is amazing. This is super good. They left it in those barrels longer than I think most people do. Yeah, 16 months. Uh, Yeah. So we've done it for six months and then taken it out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is really freaking good, though. I like this a lot. Okay, stop teasing. What is this? Okay, so this is not just a uh, uh, book-specific beer, but a series-appropriate beer. Oh. At the very beginning of the first book, what was the goal put in place? We'll meet together at the top of the tower. Yes. And by the end of this book, success. They met (laughs) together at the top of the tower. But mm, define success. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) What a name. Yep. (laughs) Define success. I've been sitting on this bottle for years, waiting for the right book. I have not seen this bottle. I don't remember this. It's been hidden in our refrigerator (laughs) for, I'm pretty sure I got this before COVID hit. Like we've had this for a while and. We haven't done inventory for a minute. No, we haven't. We have not. (laughs) So yeah. But uh, what do you think about the beer? I (laughs) really like this. Um, It's not as thick as some of the old school 
no chase, which is fine. No, definitely not as it's, thick as the. It's still it's still got good enough body, and it's yeah, got nice flavor. I will say, like, I'm surprised at how hot the amber on it is. Yeah. Still, if you've been sitting on it that long, I thought it would mellow. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like maybe the flavor, I don't know. It is really like cinnamony though. Yeah. Like I don't get a ton of vanilla. The vanilla has definitely like tapered off over yeah, time. Yeah, but I expect that. Right. Also, Tongan vanilla. I'm going to have to look yeah. this up. Yeah. So this is 13.5%. Oh, we didn't say the percentages. Or I didn't. Yours was 7.0. Yes. Yeah. And it's still in a, it's in a little 12 ounce. Yeah, which is good. That doesn't happen anymore. I know. Ska's like one of the few Colorado breweries that still does 12 ounce cans. Oh, they're going to change out their... Well, well, not for long. <laughs> but, but yeah so i think that brings us to the end of this episode uh it's been almost an hour and a half which oh, is my. you know uh, an appropriate length of time for an inking out loud episode at this point <laughs> since we are 208 episodes in uh next up as i alluded to earlier um actually not next up next up i believe is going to be uh, Blade of Taishal Part 1. Uh, it'll it'll cover the first 11 chapters of Blade of Taishal. Excuse me, the first 12, technically, because there's Chapter 0. It ends at the end of Chapter 11. Uh, and this is a continuation, of course, of the collaboration series on the Axe of Cain with Craig from The Legendarium. So keep your eye out for that. And if you want our full, crazy, in-depth, awesome episode on Chapter 0... Check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. Uh, we're, you know, we're, we're doing some really fun stuff in that conversation, digging into what essentially amounts to a standalone novelette that's also a prologue. Uh, Blade of Tyshell is a super ambitious book, and Chapter Zero deserved its own episode. Good. So, yeah, consider supporting the show there. I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is Lauren McCaffrey. Oh, wait. Oh, she's cheersing herself. <laughs> I can cheers myself. Hey. I got two glasses. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.